0: This is the Comics Alternative Critical Takes, a conversation with Keith Dallas and Jason Sachs. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Comics Alternative Critical Takes. I'm Derek, and on this episode, I talk with Keith Dallas and Jason Sachs about their latest volume in the Tomorrow's Publishing series, American Comic Book Chronicles. But before we get to that conversation, I want to let all of you know that this episode of the Comics Alternative Critical Takes is brought to you by the great folks at Discount Comic Book Service. Go to their website, dcbservice.com, for all of your comics pre-ordering needs. There, you're going to find all DC, Marvel, Image, and Dark Horse titles at 40% off the cover price if you pre-order. For all of the other publishers, you'll find that those discounts will be anywhere from 20 to 35% off the cover price. And every single month, you're going to find some incredible specials. Sometimes those specials could be as much as 45% off the cover price. Sometimes 50% off cover. But every now and again, you can find discounts that are even more impressive than that. And if you go to DCB service right now, you'll find Keith and Jason's latest work, American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1990s, for 25% off of the cover price. And while you're at it, you can get similar discounts on other volumes within the American Comic Book Chronicle series, including ones covering the 1950s, the 1970s, and both volumes focusing on the 1960s. All of this just goes to show that you can't beat the prices at Discount Comic Book Service. Go to dcbservice.com right now for all of your comics pre-ordering needs. And after you do get your titles there, please be sure to send them an email and tell them that the two guys with PhDs sent you. On this, our second show in the new Critical Take series, I have back on the podcast Keith Dallas, co-author of the new book, American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1990s. Listeners might remember that I talked with Keith, along with John Wells, back last summer when their book, Comic Book Implosion, was released by Tomorrow's Publishing. In fact, that was our very first Critical Takes episode. This time around, Keith is joined by Jason Sachs, another comic scholar and historian who has worked on other texts within the American Comic Book Chronicle series. The two have just released their volume on the 1990s, A Curious and Tumultuous Time in American Comics History. As you'll hear in our conversation, Jason and Keith discuss in detail their firsthand experiences during this decade, the process of researching for this project, the various stereotypes that they had to overcome when encapsulating the decade, and what each of them sees as key defining moments for comics during the 1990s. They also talk with me about the genesis of the American Comic Book Chronicle series and what we might expect with future volumes. Both Keith and Jason have a lot to share, so let's listen to their insights right now. Mm. pleased to have on the comics alternative keith dallas and jason sachs they have a new book out from tomorrow's publishing american comic book chronicles the 1990s guys welcome to the show
1: thanks for having us derek
0: thank you derek mm-hmm. and and keith uh, i'm having you back because if our listeners recall i had you and john wales on back in the summer of now, last year. And by the way, Happy New Year to both of you. Yes, you you too. Happy New Year. Uh, But I had uh, Keith, you and John on the show back in the summer of 2018 to talk about your DC Comics Implosion book. And that was a really fun conversation. And we were talking at the time about having you and Jason on the show when the American Comic Book Chronicle 1990s book was released. And this just came out in December of last year. That's right. And I want to talk with the two of you primarily about this new book, uh, the 1990s volume. But but before that, I think it may be useful to talk about the American Comic Book Chronicles series as a whole – uh, maybe introduce it to some of our listeners who may not have picked up a volume, uh, which they should. I, I absolutely love that series, uh, and and talk a little bit about its genesis and the work that the two of you have done with not only the 1990s volume but previous volumes.
1: Sure, um, and thanks for the compliment. Uh, so, American Comic book Chronicles is a is a decade by decade look at comic book history. Uh, we start there 's actually going to be uh essentially like a 1930s volume so we go from the 1930s all the way through the 1990s uh, with you know each volume uh, goes year by year through a decade uh, with the 1940s and the 1960s actually split between two volumes and uh, you know we try to document uh, as much as as we can in a you know two hundred and eighty page book, uh, you know all the publishers and all the creators and all the significant publications, all the uh, significant um, industry trends and developments, so that the reader is. Presented with as comprehensive a look at the complicated indi- industry as, as possible, and um, it, it's now been wow! It's actually going to be eleven years ago when uh, this project first started. Um, it emerged out of uh, my work on the Flash Companion, mm-hmm. uh, with which Jason um, contributed to. And it, the the Flash Companion was, uh, you know, very successful. Uh, if if for for people who are not familiar with tomorrow's publishing, they about 10 years ago put out a series of of companion books based on DC titles. So, help me out, Jason. So, there was like a Teen Titans companion, there was a Legion of Superheroes companion, there was a Batman companion, a Superman companion, Hawkman. there was a Hawkman companion, there was a Blue Beetle companion. So um, eventually that had to be discontinued because uh, DC's licensing fee became too prohibitive. Uh, So, but again, the sort of Flash companion ended up being one of the final companion books that Tomorrow's published. That was in 2008, and John Morrow... You know, appreciated the work, obviously appreciated how well it sold, and asked me to come up with some other ideas. And the caveat he said is that look, that, that whatever idea you come up with cannot be an exclusive DC or Marvel project because the licensing fees just, we, you know, we just can't pay the fees that they're trying to levy. So I came up with the idea of a book about 1980s comic books. I said, look, you could you know, not only do you have DC and Marvel. I mean, obviously we, we needed to come up with an idea that that fell under the uh, fair use, mm-hmm. you know. So so I said not only uh, obviously with the I mean, I grew up in, with 1980s comic books. I loved, you know, those independent publishers like Kimiko, uh, and Eclipse and Dark Horse, you know, Um and I said, why don't we put out a book about the 1980s? We'll go year by year. And John said, I love that idea, but I don't want it limited to the 1980s. I want, it, I want to do the entire history of, of comic books. I said, okay, well, I can definitely write the book on the 1980s. Let me pull together some pals to, to handle the other volume. So that's when I contacted John Wells. Uh, for, uh, the 1960s volumes, uh, Jason got pulled in for the 1970s volume and, you know, it, we had Bill Shelley, write The 1950s volume, Roy Thomas was tapped to do the 1940s volumes. He ultimately, um, became inundated with other projects. So he recommended Kurt Mitchell, who, uh, so that's the next volume coming out in 2019, is the first 1940s volume, and so, you know, we're, we're coming close to the end. Here we are, you know, 11 years later, and we're coming close to the end of the project. Thank God, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I joke with uh, John Morrow that, uh, and, and it's half-joking that this this project would be the death of me, uh, so...
2: Hey, that's just working with me, Keith, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Having to edit my writing? Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, so it's just—I mean—and it, you know, obviously, you know, Jason, you can attest to this. Is you know, when when you when you describe this project, it's like, oh, great! You know, it's it sounds—you know—it uh, sounds wonderful. It is wonderful, but the amount of work involved in each one of these volumes is tremendous. Just n- not only the amount of research, but presenting the research pre- presenting the complex history in a way that is entertaining and that's just as challenging as the research itself which can can be bogged down in a sort of he said he said type of uh dilemma you know so whose whose account do we do we go with here especially you know once you get to Uh, say, the 1990s, where there are several different accounts being published, not only at the time, but afterwards.
0: So let's say some of the controversies surrounding, and and we can see this in the new book, uh, Jim Shooter, let's say, in his work with various publishers and his own, uh, uh, I guess, outlets as well, you know, it gets into this, he said, he said, that you're describing,
2: yeah, and Shooter is an interesting example because I have also uh, written a book about Shooter, Jim Shooter Conversations for University Press of Mississippi, which involved uh, doing an uh, about six-hour interview with Shooter. So I've heard his side of the story in great detail as well as editing it. Um, but there there's interesting stories around him where we saw many different sides of a story um, when he left Valiant Comics in 1992, there were literally five or six different stories floating around about why Shooter left. He tells the story about um, his former business partner, Steve Masarsky, um, getting involved with a woman from a, the finance department, and they basically pushed him out as a way of asserting their ownership of the company. Other people say that Shooter was looking to take over full ownership of the characters or partial ownership of the characters, which he knew wouldn't sustain the company, and therefore Um, he basically set himself up to leave. And there's a lot of cases where we just have to present multiple images of the same story um, because we just hear so many different stories around it. Um, The other thing that's been really interesting for me about working on this book, and one of the things we did was really work from original source material magazines and other material from the time uh, even more than talking to people now because uh, we found that that was more accurate gave a better portrait of the way that the industry kind of took shape at the time and so like in 1991 92 when image comics was being created um, of course now 30 years on we all see this a lot of the hype around it is around this kind of being a preordained thing that image would strike a blow for creator ownership in the industry. At the time, though, it was a bunch of guys in their 20s who kind of just wanted to have a chance to make more money from their properties and really be more free with things. And so it's kind of fun to go back and see kind of the looseness around the creation of image that's um, kind of been swept under the, not swept under the rug, but definitely downplayed since then. And um, I just find that kind of thing just a lot of fun because it, it pulls out the idea that these are just a bunch of guys improvising in their lives, and from that standpoint, like, it makes, makes them a lot more relatable.
0: You know, I, I I find the the parts of this new book on the 1990s as it relates to to image and its history quite fascinating, along with the space that you devote to vertigo and, and i want to come back to that later on in our conversation but but looking at the series of as a whole the american comic book chronicles now now Keith, you had mentioned that you're about to wrap up. So we will see later this year, I guess maybe around summer is what I saw on the Tomorrow's website, that the first 1940s book that Mitchell and Thomas are doing, 1940 to 1944, that's going to be coming out. And then there's going to be a 1945 to 1949 that will – you have any idea when that one Maybe probably those. early
1: early twenty twenty. Okay. Early twenty
0: twenty. Okay, and then you had also mentioned that there's going to be a nineteen thirties volume. Yep.
1: Yeah. So that um, Bob Hughes uh, wrote that, and we've John and I have been you know going back and forth on how to release that. Um, his initial idea was to come out with like a slipcase for the entire series. Oh, and wow. include yeah, include the 1930 volume with the slipcase. Uh, that ultimately became impractical from a shipping standpoint. Just trying to ship out all of these slipcases, and so we're now consider and he and his concern is um and and this isn't just a concern with um the 1930s volume, but it, it, with tomorrow's books in general um is that the pre-orders on a 1930s volume would not be high enough to um justify the cost of a print run because as you can imagine i mean and derek you have a hard copy of the of the 1990s volume yes or Mm -hmm. you only have a digital okay so you know these are these are hardcover full color my coffee table type of books; these are really expensive to print, and John has to sort of, you know, outlay a lot of money, uh, and then wait a bunch of months before recovering the cost of that print run. So his concern is, uh, you know, what type of print run would a 1930s volume? Uh, excuse me, what type of pre-orders would a uh, would a 1930s volume generate? So we are. Um, considering doing a Kickstarter campaign for the nineteen thirties volume, which okay. um yeah, and I think because I've I've been trying to get him uh, get John Morrow into Kickstarter campaigns because there are projects that I know he 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 wants to green light, but he's got qualms about them. And again, this is outside, even outside of American Comic for Chronicles. And I said, look, Kickstarter is like the sort of the perfect testing ground to see if there's interest. Because if there is, then you you've generated enough funds through the Kickstarter campaign to pay for the print run, so that now you're not worried about being you know short money. Uh, And if the Kickstarter campaign doesn't succeed, okay, well there you go. Then you know, you know that you don't, you know, not to go ahead with the project. You know, you've just saved yourself money by by not greenlighting a project that uh, potentially doesn't break a profit.
0: You talk about the uh, production value, and you know I, I think that these books are beautiful uh, in terms of you know the hardcover, the size, the color, the, the the glossy pages, the images that you include, and the design. I mean, all of that, in addition to the content, which I think is really valuable, and in fact. Uh, and, and and Keith, I think I, I mentioned this to you, but the previous or a previous version that the two of you worked on, the 1970s that came out, what, in fall of 2014, I actually reviewed that for the Comics Journal Image Text. And one of the things I pointed out was in addition to the content and what you get from that, it, it is just a beautiful book. Thank you. So yeah, I, I really appreciate the the work that all of you and uh, Tomorrow's puts into this series. I'm wondering is might there be a volume of the first decade of the 2000s? Any plans?
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, Jason's laughing because he knows what I'm about to say next. I, Derek, I just told you that this series is is going to send me to an early grave, and now you want to extend it by a decade.
0: Well, I like the series. What do you expect?
1: <laughs> no, I, and I, I appreciate that desire. It's Okay, the first decade of the 21st century becomes an, a distinct challenge. In the sense that, I mean, not, not just not only just from, uh, OK, are we starting to move away from because Tomorrow's Publishing has a, has a pretty um, set um, uh, fan base that seems mostly rooted in, you know, 60s, 70s and 80s books. Right. Even I mean, John Morrow, I think I've told you this, Jason, that J- that John Morrow had had some serious qualms about the 1990s volume that he was. He was sort of crossing his fingers that we, that, that that the book would, would get the pre orders. He, he he really thought that, uh, the pre orders for the 1990 volume were going to be significantly lower than they were on the 60s, 70s, and 80s volume. And thankfully, uh, that proved not to be the case, that the the pre orders actually were at the same levels as the other volumes, which, um, I guess is a, a testament to, you know, people. Um, cause right, Jason, we've seen online, Jason, that, you know, there, there are certain people that they don't just buy one volume. They may not buy every single volume, but they'll buy more than one volume. Right. Is that Jason? The, uh,
2: well, they look so great on a bookshelf together. And as you said, they all have such beautiful production values that uh, I found myself like I was not very interested in the 1950s, uh, era, but as soon as I started reading the book, I just fell in love with it. I couldn't put the book down because it's, it it's just a great overview of the decade um and so yeah i think people do love to buy multiple volumes of it
1: yeah so that's so okay so john's got a john moore's got a way out like okay well would even though the tomorrow's the typical tomorrow's publishing consumer really isn't interested in 21st century comic books would they buy a volume on 21st century comic books because they've bought all these other volumes? So that's concern number one. Concern number two, and and Jason and I have, have spoken about this, Derek, is when you think about how comic book history is chronicled over the decades. So in the 1960s, you have a plethora of fanzines, right? In the 1970s, you start, not only do you have the fanzines, but you have a public publications like the Comic Reader, and you have um, Comics Buyers Guide, um, and and Comics Journal, both um, began in the 1970s, and then in the 1980s you have like Amazing Heroes. I mean, which I know is a, a sister publication of the Comics Journal, but you have these print um, publications that you can access and you can see comic book industry news from a month to month basis and that's extended into the 1990s obviously through magazines like wizard and hero illustrated uh what else
2: jason am i overlooking in the 1990s oh you can't forget overstreets comic price guy there you go yes they did monthly over a right. decade uh um, but yeah uh, uh so you have i'm sorry jason go ahead. was the other one yeah Keep going, Keith.
1: Okay, so you have even up to the end of the 1990s, you have these print publications that we can access and and chart comic book history as you know, with the rumors and you know the projects in development and things like you know what fans are talking about. Right? How do you once you get into the 21st century? How do we? How do rhetorical question here. How do we get our comic book news? We're, we're looking at news sites like Newsarama and Comic Book Resources and Bleeding Cool. So then how, once you start into the 21st century, how do we access, because obviously those sites have archived, but they haven't archived it in a way where we can just go through it year by year. I don't know if I'm making sense, Derek. That, no, you, no, you are. I know. mean, this, this does make sense. And, and this, is, this is something that Mike Tiefenbacher first pointed out, you know, he, the former um, editor-in-chief of the Comic Reader. He said, I mean, on one hand, obviously, with news websites, there is an accessibility there as opposed to having to buy a subscription to Comics Buyer's Guide or to Comics Journal. But the challenge is, okay, I want to see what people were talking about in 2002, Obviously, I can rely on my memory, which I, I always caution my authors about doing that, because the things you remember might be first you know, overly subjective, but you know, you you forget a lot, you know, as the years go on. Uh, but trying to now chart comic book uh, history really a- again, these books are challenging enough. And now you have that monkey wrench thrown into it. So um, I'm reluctant to – I mean, obviously, if there's enough um, interest, if there's enough clamor for uh, a 21st century volume, Mm -hmm. uh, John will put a gun to my head and say, do it. (laughs) Uh, I'll say on January 1st, 2019, officially there are no – Zero plans to
2: put out such a volume. Okay, and have have fun finding a new writer to do it. Keith, <laughs> I am out after four years of my life spent spent on this book. Um, I want to move on to other things in my life. It was an amazing uh, accomplishment, and I'm proud to have done it. But man, I don't want to step into the 20 to 2000s and the complexity of all that. It's going to be wild.
0: So you're saying that the 1990s volume was at least four years in the making.
2: Yeah, it was. Um I pitched it to Keith uh actually right after he finished the nineteen seventies volume. Um so that's, on the floor
1: uh, of San Diego Comic-Con. Right. He approached he approached me and John because we had we had someone who was attached. Uh, I don't wanna I don't wanna mention his name, um, but a, a very good author, but ultimately he he um he bowed out just cause he he just did not have the time uh to put into the research. And so this was, yes, yeah, summer of 2014 and we had no one attached. And John and I were at the tomorrow's booth at the San Diego comic-con and we're you know, I forget if that exact moment we were discussing it, but I know it was something that we were discussing about mm-hmm. trying to figure out what to do with the 1990s volume. And here comes Jason says, you know what guys, if, uh, if, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll throw my hat into the ring if if you've you know if you feel like I can do it, and I said let's do it. Hmm.
0: So both of you were talking about some of the challenges that you faced. I guess the, not only with the 1990s book, but the series as a whole. Depending on what period of time, what decade, a particular volume covers, I, I'm curious if there has been a decade or a particular volume because the 1960s is divided into two different volumes you're going to be doing the same with the 1940s is there any particular volume or decade that you have found keith as the editor of the series particularly i don't want to say difficult but uh challenging more so than the others
1: yeah i mean they're all challenging for for different reasons um oh boy that's an excellent question derek um I'm trying to, you know, mm. uh, Jason can, Jason can, can, you know, I think will back me up on this. That the, the the 70s volume, um, oh boy, Jason, how do I how do I phrase this? Uh, we inherited a bit of a mess, right? I guess is that is that the polite way to put it?
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah, and definitely. you know, uh, not to, and again, I'm I'm trying to, uh protect the guilty here without naming names so you know it it, the the project was started it definitely was not up to snuff it was definitely uh the way it was started and everyone sort of recognized it and john morrow basically said look you guys uh, upon my recommendation said look you guys got to start over and, and that's you know, uh, uh, Jason, I forget if you contacted me or I contacted you, I think, I think i reached out to you, Jason, if I yeah. remember correctly. I can't do this by myself. I need, I need help. So it was me, Jason, Dave Dykema, John Wells, uh, essentially, right? I mean, that's fair to say, Jason, right? The The four of us just, because we had, we didn't have four years to put that book together. And we had like 18 months or something like that to put that book together.
2: Yeah, but you know it was interesting because like it felt like that book kind of came together more quickly than a 90s book. I don't know why, but it seemed like we just had more ability to smack everything together. There were maybe, more
1: hands on deck.
2: Yeah, more hands on deck, but also maybe fewer places to look for information and fewer controversies to write about. I mean, I remember writing the 1979 chapter over a weekend yeah. and having it be in decent shape Kind of also because the industry was so down in 79. And um, it it just felt like that book fell into place easier, I guess, than the 90s book.
1: I don't think I'd agree with that again. I mean, listen, I.
2: Yeah, you're Miley Mayberry.
1: Yeah, because they're all challenging. They all have their. um, They're all sort of obstacles that had to be overcome. They're all sort of. There were difficulties that had to be, you know. There were okay. I mean, there were challenges that had to be met, and and you know, so I don't know. I don't know if I would agree with that assessment, but yeah, I mean, it did for some. You know,
0: I mean, Dave, we also yeah. Mm.
1: Excellent question, Derek. You got
0: me on the spot there. <laughs> okay, well, maybe kind of along with this, and. and- It kind of circles back to something that you said earlier, Keith, when you were talking about the genesis of this series, starting with the work that you were doing with Jason on the Flash Companion and and John Morrow's decision to discontinue that series just because of uh, high cost of permissions, right? Right. Um, Do you find with any of the books within this series any kind of potential drawbacks or – again, challenges, I think, would be a good word to use with getting the rights to use any of the images because it's an image-heavy text, or because you cover the vast field and not just the big two, DC and Marvel, um, all of that may fall under fair use.
1: It it does fall under fair use. We've had zero, John Marlowe has not conveyed to me any complaints from any publisher because I think they all realize that um, they don't have a leg to stand on because it is truly you know a comprehensive I mean you look on you look at the definition of fair use you know historical educational you know purposes um, we make sure the covers if you look at the covers for all the volumes there are no DC or Marvel publications featured I mean that that's that was a decision that John Morrow made just to make sure that because uh. That's what really DC and Marvel harp on. They want they they want to make sure the covers cannot be misleading, so that you're not trying to fool "quote unquote" fool the consumer into believing that you're selling a Marvel product or a DC product. But but what you just said actually, um, uh, okay, triggered uh, for me a response to the previous question is. Um, the 1990s becomes challenged, Derek, because now we have uh, two So, so we before the 1990s, we we had we put out five other volumes, and this project doesn't necessarily get easier with every volume. It, it, it. You could argue that it gets even more complicated and challenging because you have to with every volume you have to make sure it aligns in tone and approach to all the other previous volumes so that i mean as an editor I, that that became a, a, you know a very pressing fixation and that is was sort of the mess that jason and i inherited with the 1970s volume is that the way it was started just didn't align with the other volumes and we had to we had to reset it to make sure that it's that it's reads like obviously there's going to be some differences in the writing style of bill shelley and the writing style of john wells and the writing style of jason Sachs, but they all have the same approach to the project if i'm making sense
0: Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed in reading all of the works, the volumes that have come out so far, is they're consistent in the way that you lay out the information. And and for listeners who may not be familiar with this series, again, I strongly recommend that you you check it out and pick up these volumes. But with each chapter, we have a particular year, and on that particular year, you start off with – Maybe a broader oversight of what may define that particular year, 1965, 1984, what have you. And then you have the a timeline, a two-page spread, which I really enjoy uh, every chapter's timeline, where you chart visually not only major events from that particular year in terms of comics and comics culture, but also other cultural moments, whether it be pop culture Uh, politics, or what have you, in order to set everything into context. And then the remainder of the chapter covers, and sometimes it starts with major DC events and news, sometimes Marvel events or news, and then you always take a look at other things that were going on, whether it be, let's say, the smaller publishers in the 1950s or 60s, or as we get into the 70s, 80s, and then 90s indie or alternative publishers and what was going on with them so you you establish a pattern i think from the very first books the 1960 to 64 and then keith your 1980s text and i have seen uh, all of them being fairly consistent in how you present this information which i appreciate okay good i
1: that that's that's a relief to know because that's that's something that that would keep me up at nights. you know just (laughs) making sure that that not that essentially that all the volumes can be read as you know one um, you know whole. It, it obviously, again, there's going to be some distinctions in writing style, but that it they all th- there's no deviation to the approach. There's no deviation to um, how these books are laid out right and and describe how you know certain like events are described and how the manner in which they are described yeah so so that's you know by the time we're getting to the 1990s volume, and you know that you're grappling with that you're sort of grappling with the legacy of of the project and making sure like you know that it falls in line with the uh, with the other volumes, which um
2: so. Um, well, we and we have the same designer, David Greenewalt, who always does just spectacular yes. yep. work. Um, yeah, I got to say, like, my favorite thing to do is walk around a convention floor and show off the book. And basically, as soon as I pull it out and show them how beautiful the, the layouts are, like, it sells the book immediately. Yep. yep. Um, because it's just such a compelling presentation.
1: Yeah, yeah. David, like you said, Jason, David does just an, an incredible job. With with each of these volumes Bill Walco designed the 1980s volume and and David uh, took his baton and and ran with it with uh, all the other volumes. And really, you know, no complaints uh, regarding the work that he's did. He's done. Excuse me.
0: Let's talk specifically about the 1990s volume, and I want to come back to something that you were discussing earlier, Jason, and that is the significance of Image Comics, You know, which comes into – not only to the fore, but comes to birth in the 1990s. It, one of the things that struck me about the 1990s book is not only with the Image thing – uh, the 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 space that you devote to the history of Image comics in the early days, but also, as I mentioned earlier, the significance of Vertigo. And it's interesting to read about – I mean, I, I knew this before, but I think both of you chronicle both Image and the beginnings of Vertigo quite well in this new book, volume to compare what had been with Image in the early 1990s when it got its start and then – with Vertigo in the 1990s when when it was founded, compare that to where Image and Vertigo are today. So I'm curious, in writing the 1990s book with these two publishers or imprints in the case of Vertigo, did you notice, uh, were you acutely aware of the difference between the then and now with both Image and Vertigo or or with other publishers that you were writing about?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the story of the 1990s is kind of the growth of the medium from being kind of a place where people are just creating derivative characters as they were in the early days of, of uh, Image in particular to a place where they were creating um, really innovative comic artwork. Um, so in early days of Image, we saw a lot of, uh, especially Rob Liefeld creating uh, very derivative characters. You know, Youngblood was variation on X Force. Um, he had character like Blood Wolf, who was a variation on Lobo. Um, and that seemed to be kind of predominating a lot of what was coming out from Image in those days. Obviously, like Supreme, maybe Supreme is the best example of that. Supreme was a Liefeld character who obviously was a p- pastiche of Superman. Most people feel like those original Supreme comics are unreadable, or at least a very cheesy, archetypical 90s work. Um, by the end of the decade, Alan Moore taken on Supreme, given the character a lot more life, a lot more complexity, such that it actually became a critically acclaimed comic, which would have been almost unimaginable in 1993 or so. And it, there's a lot of that that happened uh, in the industry um, by '99, uh, in part because um, people had gotten humbled by the crash. Of the industry, you know, the the early image books sold one to two million copies per issue. Even the lower-selling books were selling in the hundreds of thousands. By the end of the decade, they were struggling to sell a hundred thousand of anything, and that forced a higher level of quality on the decade. So we see by like ninety-nine, a book like Authority or Planetary, which are now recognized classics, coming out through uh, with, uh, what Wildstone evolved, Wildstorm, which is one of the Image imprints, evolved into. And really getting a lot of attention, um, as well as books like Battle Chasers and Crimson and Fathom and other books that uh, kind of showed a lot of the potential of what Image could really grow into. It moved beyond just Todd McFarlane doing Spawn into a wide diversity of of titles. Um, It's interesting because Image was, or rather, uh, Vertigo was created kind of as the opposite of Image in some ways, whereas Image was on the surface flashiness um artist focus uh valiant was always or excuse me uh 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 we could talk about valiant too yeah (laughs) vertigo uh valiant is an interesting contrast as well but uh yeah vertigo was created to be a kind of writer-driven uh place um obviously it grew out of the work that alan Moore and neil gaiman had done for dc in the 80s and 90s and really it was always had writers at the center of it so um to me uh Vertigo was more of a growth inside its own kind of milieu where um, like a book like Transmet makes a lot of sense coming out of uh, Vertigo because you could have imagined that when Karen Berger created The Line in 1993, whereas you kind of couldn't have expected Image Show growing into what it became by the end of the decade.
0: Now, that leads me to to another question, and I'm curious if either of you have – a feeling for let's say the most notable non-DC or Marvel press of the 1990s and by most notable I mean not only in terms of its sales or impact but also in terms of the the kind of news that it generated i mean was there in creating the 1990s book something that really stood out about some of these smaller presses like you know, let's say Tops or Valiant, Defiant, Broadway, or even those that have roots in the 1980s, Malibu or Eclipse.
2: Yeah, I think I inadvertently put my finger on um, uh, the mo- What I think is the most archetypical press of the 1990s, which is Vertigo. Or, excuse me, which is Valiant comics. Mm-hmm. Um, Valiant was created in 1989 by Jim Shooter and his business partners. In 1990, they nearly went bankrupt publishing Nintendo and WWF comics, um, wrestling comics. And then um, Jim Shooter decided he wanted to publish superheroes through them. Um, They started uh, a new set of comics, including uh, revivals of Books like Magnus Robot Fighter and Solar Man of the Atom. And um, suddenly they started to kind of capture lightning in the bottle. And so, just at the time that the industry was really starting to grow like crazy, um, they were hyped by Wizard Magazine, produced interesting comics, and became this big company for a short period of time. Um, there's a great story that we tell in the book about. Um, on the day that the death of Superman comic came out, there were two lines around the block at Golden Apple Comics in Los Angeles. One was to get a copy of the Death of Superman, uh, Superman seventy five. The other was to get a copy of Bloodshot number one, which was an early image, uh, early uh, frid- or, excuse me, early <laughs> Valiant book. I'm sorry, I'm getting it's still early here. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> one of those publishers that start with a V, right, right. Know. So for a short period of time, uh, Valiant Comics were selling literally in the millions, uh, their Turok Dinosaur Hunter sold 1.75 million copies in 1993. But out of those 1.75 million copies, maybe 100,000 actually made them into the hands of actual readers. Most of them just sat in the back of comic shops. And from that kind of overexpansion, along with uh, a a crossover series that they became involved with called Deathmate, um, Valiant kind of helped to trigger the uh, downfall of the comics industry, where uh, we had something like thousands, uh, 5,000 comic shops closing between 1992 and 1994. Um, and so they, the line continued on, continually fighting for its own place in the industry. They were bought by a video game company called Acclaim. Acclaim tried, tried to do a couple of different revivals of these characters. And just like the whole comics industry, they just kind of muddled along from about 1995 to uh, 2000. And ironically, by the end of the decade, they were barely selling. Their last book they put out was an attempt to revive an earlier uh, crossover event that was a massive success for them called Unity. Uh, Unity in 1992 was a huge, uh, just a blockbuster hit. Unity 2000, on the other hand, sold something like 3,000 copies per issue. And so uh, Valiant really shows the the amazing growth and the amazing drop in sales of the industry, shows the kind of... Chance that everyone took to uh, expand the indus- expand their companies, and then the fall that we experienced as well. So they're just a, a, just a really interesting company. Uh, honestly, I think there's a whole book to be written just about their rise and fall in the 1990s. Hmm.
0: So in many ways, you feel that Valiant is representative of comics in the 1990s.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The only thing that makes them not representative is that they did focus on story rather than artwork. I mean, image comics, especially in the early days, was was especially well-named because it was all about the image, all about the slickness, all about uh, Rob Liefeld not drawing feet. Um, uh, <laughs> one of the interesting things is going back to reading uh, these comics again uh, the early Valiant comics are actually really very good classic comic book storytelling. A lot of that is the influence of Jim Shooter, who is uh, another just fascinating character from the decade, um, where like the the Unity crossover, for example, which spanned all 12 of uh, Vertigo's or Valiant's books. Damn. Um <laughs> Had uh, introduced important changes to the characters, really changed the the line in a lot of ways, and uh, was a real kind of go for broke kind of way of creating a new world outside your window, and so like their images really or their ambitions really paid off in a way that um, I don't think any other publishers' ambitions paid off in the time. Um, And some of their books, uh, I I became a big fan of their book Rye um, because it's just this amazingly kind of dark sci fi story about a future japan that kind of has seen better days and i just think they were kind of brave in that they tried to do very different things
0: you know as as you're talking jason i can't help but think of the way that you guys begin this 1990s volume in your introduction where you cite the uh, chinese proverb may you live in interesting times and you point out that that can be both a blessing and a curse and then you apply it to what was going on in the 1990s. I don't know, as I was reading that, I was also thinking about the opening of Dickens's Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Because right. on the one hand, we have something like Valiant that you were describing, and for me in particular, Vertigo, I absolutely love uh, through, throughout, throughout its history, in fact, um, even even into today. And so that's the best of times. But in many ways... The 1990s saw, if if not the creation, then the solidifying of certain aspects of comic culture that really gets on my nerves. Uh, And, you know, Jason, you were touching on some of those. The emphasis on slickness and image over story content as, let's say, embodied in what we saw going on in the early days of image. Um, Also, the reliance on gimmicks. Like the embossing, uh, the cover design, the the multiple covers. Nothing gets on my nerves more in terms of comics today especially than certain publishers relying on multiple covers – in order to, to generate sales. And I, I don't have anything against different covers. It's just when that is overemphasized, it becomes almost ridiculous. And I, I have to laugh. And, and we saw that quite a bit in the 1990s, as you guys point out, and and how these gimmicks ultimately led in many ways to the fall of comic sales In the 1990s, going from the early 1990s into mid-decade and then toward the end of the, not only decade, but century.
2: I got to say, I kind of fell in love with all these embossed and foil-wrapped covers. (laughs) I collect them now. I was actually just at the shop yesterday and bought like a giant sack out of them out of the dollar bin. Um, I found some great Marvel UK comics. I have Shadow Riders number one right here in my hand with an embossed cover, including cable, and it's like so awful. It's wonderful. Um, so, but and, you, yeah, and you're
1: I mean, buying it cheaper than when it when it was first sold, Jason. think, yes, that. <laughs> you know
2: yeah which kind of shows where the industry kind of rose and fall it fell exactly you know um I don't know how many extra copies of Sleepwalker Number One were sold because of the amazing foil cover um but it's just a great relic of the time uh, yeah, but you're right. I mean it was really an emphasis over style over substance, really an emphasis over of uh kind of mediocre storytelling over truly innovative work um uh, and I think we see that um i kind of a believer that no matter how an industry grows or shrinks, you're going to see the same percentage of garbage. It's just that there was a yeah. lot more garbage back at that time because the industry was so large. Um, you know, in 92, 93, there were hundreds of comics on the stands. And if you looked, you find a lot of good work. And we talk about that in the book. But there's also a lot of stuff like, um, you know, Death's Head. Electra, Root of Evil, um, Avengers, and Fantastic Four during the, that era were just especially bad comics, and um, you know it, I think that's just kind of the nature of the business that there's always going to be, you know, what's Sturgeon's Law: ten percent, ninety percent of everything is crap. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that I got to admit that, um, and we we see you know because American comic chronicles has its own you know, Facebook group like everyone else does. Uh, And I've seen a couple of comments, you know, when we were posting, you know, previews or posting um, updates. Uh, And, you know, and a couple of people would chime in about how, you know, the 1990s was the, you know, the worst uh, decade in comic book history. And I feel that's an exaggeration. I think that's, you know, like Jason just said, every single decade in comic book history, the okay. I'll put it this way: if we randomly pick a comic book from every decade of comic book history, the likelihood that the comic book that we pick is you know derivative and hackneyed uh, is is tremendous. There's actually for from every you know. There's I think you know. There's this myth that everything that was published in the 1960s was a gem that's nonsense uh go go to you know mid-1970s dc comics the, uh, the great majority of them were unreadable you know it's um it's a myth that only bad comic books were published in the 1990s it's just that the bad comic books of the 1990s also sold millions of copies is that, that's sort of the, the, the problem in documenting the decade. But there, there are some um, all-time great comic book uh, works that were published in the 1990s that I feel stand the test of time and can be you know included in, in the greatest works you know, of the medium.
2: Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of forgotten gems from the 90s. Uh, Enemy Ace War Idol by George Pratt from 1991. It's a fascinating meditation on war. Um, Stuck Rubber Baby by Howard Cruz is an excellent biographical graphic novel that ties together the civil rights movement to his coming out of the closet. Um, City of Glass by David Matzkelly and Paul Karazik is a brilliant, amazingly interesting graphic novel experience. Metsa Kelly also published, uh, Rubber Blanket, a three issue, uh, oversized book. That's just a legendarily great comic. Um, as far as mainstream comic. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I mean, I mean, just, you know, just bone itself. I mean, think about the, the timelessness of bone. I think that's, so people will look at say, um, They'll they'll say, okay, the nineteen eighties, Alan Moore's Watchmen, and they'll compare it to Rob Liefeld's Youngblood. I'm like, well that's a stupid that's a that's a ridiculous comparison. Like, well why don't you compare Watchmen to like what what um Jason mentioned earlier, like to some of Warren Ellis's works in the late nineteen nineties. I mean well, that's Robinson's
0: the Golden
2: Age. Some right. Robinson's you know, the Golden Age. So Starman.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Star Kurt Man Busick's uh, and Alec Ross's um, uh, Marvels. I mean, that's, you, you know, you don't, it's not fair to take the best of one decade and compare it to the worst of another decade. you got to compare apples to apples here.
2: Yeah, I could go on and on. Uh, Pre Unity Valiant Comics, as I mentioned, are super solid. Superhero stories. Um, Kurt Busick and Sean Chen's Iron Man from 98 99. Crosses Tony Stark with James Bond. That's super fun. b B6 Untold Spider- Tales of Spider-Man is a treat. Um, Jim Shooter's Broadway comics are a lot of fun. Um, he has a, a series called Fatal that's really uh, worth finding out of the quarter bins. It's just a really uh, amazingly amazing kind of clever story. Um, the Amalgam comics from 96 and 97 are offbeat treats. Um, Peter David's 90s Supergirl series is underrated. Um, Batman No Man's Land. Um, in the 1999 crossover it really stands up well, and then there are indie indie books like Strangers in Paradise, um, Squaw, uh, Swan Scud the Disposable Assassin, Through the Habit Trails, Jar of Fools, Castle Waiting, Age of Bronze. I, it just goes on and on. There's a lot of great comics from that era. Um, Peter Baggs, Hate, Love and Rockets continued. There's just a lot of great material um, that that is worth seeking out.
0: You know, both of you are mentioning. Quite a variety of titles that we could categorize as alternative or indie, uh, small press, you know, like Hate and Stuck Rubber Baby. And it struck me in reading this 1990s volume that I think when a lot of people think of alternatives to the mainstream, or at least I do, uh, the 1980s immediately come to mind, right? And so we have – those that in some ways kind of inherited what was going on in the 60s and 70s with the underground movement and so you have in the 1980s something like I mean obviously a mouse you have raw but uh, maybe even more important you have love and rockets right that that got it right. started in the early 1980s but when you think about it in the 1990s there are I guess many defining titles like Peter Baggs hate or Daniel Klaus's eight ball Um you know the the beginnings of, of of Jimmy Corrigan and 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 all of that. In addition to let's say, you know, City of Glass that you've mentioned, or Stuck Rubber Baby, and 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 work by Harvey P. Carr. So it it just I find interesting that the 1990s, in terms of indie or alternative comics, seems to pack maybe even more of a punch than the 1980s. And I'm wondering if you guys felt that in in doing the 1990s book.
2: Yeah, I felt that way. And it was a struggle, honestly, to really try and pr- present a portrait of the full comic book industry. It was easy to focus on books like uh, Valiant, Vertigo, Image, Tops, Marvel and DC. But we make a point of talking about the, the uh, non-alternative comics as well. We got to touch on the controversy around Dave Sim and mm-hmm. – um, alleged misogyny we'll leave it at that but we also had to touch on stuff like harvey p Carr and our cancer year which might be his greatest work um and i think it's important for us to follow to chronicle the full spectrum of comics um i do think there's a great book that just covers indie comics from the era um our remit was really to do a broad spectrum of uh uh chronicling the industry Um, so we talk about everything from kids comics to kind of the most alternative comics to the point where uh, one of my favorite little anecdotes in the book was um, Fanagraphics, maybe one of the best publishers in North America, who published you know, people like Dan Close and the Hernandez Brothers, um, experienced major financial problems in the early part of the decade. And they were able to pay for the company to stay alive by producing a line of sex comics. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, Their Eros, Eros line. Tom, Yes. Eros line, And they at one point they had 20 or 30 different titles a month coming out through the Eros line, it was booming for them. And then by 1999, with the rise of the internet, uh, that line started to crash on them, and they had to cancel not just that line but a whole set of other indie comics that they were hoping to publish with the profits from it. And it's interesting how kind of everything is all tied together. We got the internet. And, uh, you know, the need to publish a book like 8-Ball, which is truly innovative, as well as, um, you know, this this crappy – these often crappy porn
0: comics. (laughs) One of the things that, as you were pointing out, that you do cover not only in the 1990s book, but, you know, in all of them in the series are the various mainstream events – crossovers and tie-ins and what have you that defined each particular year. Uh, Now, I'm wondering, as the two of you were working on the 1990s book, if there were one or two DC or Marvel events that you felt were defined in terms of what the 90s were about or were really notable to you for its time. And And I know that there's a lot to choose from there.
2: <laughs>
1: I like how we both neither one of us tries to touch that
2: one. Yeah, like uh, Keith, do you have something? No, um, uh, I guess DC versus <laughs> Marvel. Um, yeah,
1: that that um, I think that can sort of you can point to that as an encapsulation of the decade.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great choice because it, it encapsulates a decade in a few ways. Uh, one is that uh, it was an attempt to try and revive the industry at a point that it was really dying. Um, by 1996, when that came out, uh, industry sales had just basically fallen off a cliff, and it was an attempt to try and grab uh, readership desperately. Um, by by January 96, it, uh, cumulative industry sales were about 13 million. Whereas at their peak, there were 48 million. So it was less than, it was about 25% of what industry sales were at the peak. And so they hoped to grab people into comic shop by finally telling people, showing people who would win a battle between Captain America and Batman or Wolverine and Lobo. Um, And um, Marvel and DC both just blew that story so badly, uh, it just engendered more anger at the companies. Um, There was this great story. not great in the comic, but great background story about the battle between Wolverine and Lobo, which uh, I think Peter David was, was asked to write. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Keith.
1: I think but it was the, Ron Mars actually wrote
2: that okay. issue, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they didn't know how to, to... So first of all, fans were able to, to uh, at that point, I think just write in with their votes um, for who would win a battle. So, you know, they were able to vote between Storm and Wonder Woman or Superman and Thor, um, Uh, Superman and Hulk, Superman and Hulk. Hulk. But the, uh, well, why don't you finish the story? You told it the other day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously the, the, the writers are beholden to the, the fan vote again. I mean, the, the, the five matchups that the fans voted on Batman versus Captain America, Hulk versus Superman, Superboy versus Spider-Man Wolverine versus Lobo and Wonder Woman versus Storm. So however the vote went, the writers essentially had to honor. And uh, I mean, I, I know, you know, Ron and I, Ron Mars and I are actually pretty good friends. And I forget if I ever asked him, because if you go back to the issue and the battle between Lobo and Wolverine, it, of course, happens in a bar. But the two square off and then jump behind a bar, and then Wolverine emerges, and that's it. That's the battle. So the the, <laughs> the whole the whole battle essentially occurs off camera, and I can imagine Ron just sort of throwing up his hands and just being like, I, I mean, I don't know how to you know write this battle, and just maybe that I mean that becomes the joke of it that they have a battle and you don't even see it. I'm sure the fans, many fans probably didn't appreciate that type of presentation, but, you know, it's, uh, I I mean, I I don't envy Peter David and Ron Mars having to write this story because it just is such a blatant gimmick, which makes it again, I think, a perfect encapsulation of of the 1990s, Hmm. at least of of
2: mainstream comics. (laughs) Yeah perfect encapsulation
0: yeah and, and i want to ask more about what both of you have touched on and that is the declining sales as we get into the 1990s and how in many ways that's the result not only of some of the shenanigans that the publishers were engaged in uh but also in terms of distribution as well and yeah. I, I know that in 1995 you have and in fact you even titled the chapter of 1995 uh by calling it the exclusivity wars. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to how all of that contributed to the decline of sales in the 1990s.
1: I think that that is the most important story of the decade. And I'm going to pass the baton off to Jason with that, that that just chronicling the uh, distribution war and what emerged from that. That is what, I mean, and I think this is where a lot of sort of comic book fans get the decade wrong, is they'll look at the mediocre comic books and they say, this is what destroyed the industry. No, th- that's not what destroyed the industry. What destroyed the industry was Marvel's decision to go exclusively with Hero's World. And Jason, I'll let you either agree or disagree with that.
2: Well, I, so by '95 there were 4,200 comic stores in America. Um, by In 1992, there were about 10,000. So the uh, number of comic stores in the country were already cut in half um, by 1995. Uh, now, that's a bit of a distortion. There's a lot of stores that didn't only sell comics or sell comics as a small part of their business. But if we take the idea that the industry was already half the size it was just three years before – and continue from there, then it shows that uh, comics were in trouble. That was made much worse when uh, Marvel decided to buy a company called Heroes World. And triggered the uh, exclusivity wars. So basically, before 1995, there were several distributors in America. The number varies based on the number of companies on in business and um, the size of the industry. But anywhere between seven and fifteen different distributors across the company. Uh, excuse me, across the country. And generally, they were um, regional distributors. There so are two major national distributors: Heroes World and Capital City Distribution. Um, a major East Coast distributor named Heroes World. Uh, was experiencing financial troubles in 94 and into 95. And at the end of the year, uh, marvel actually at the end of 1994, Marvel had reached an agreement to purchase Heroes World. uh, And and rumors circulated throughout the industry that Marvel would use them as their exclusive distributor, which triggered massive panic at the time. Uh, Marvel still, even despite the fact that Image and DC were on their heels, Was still the number one company in America for comic sales. Um, It turned out that Marvel did actually pull their books and distribute them exclusively through Heroes World, which was a catastrophe in a number of ways. Uh, Books didn't reach the retailers. Uh, Many retailers had to open multiple accounts, which required them, which meant that they would get lower discounts on their comics. And uh, it just generally triggered a whole mess of additional problems. One of the most interesting things about that is that once Marvel went to a single distributor, there was a rush for other companies to move to a single distributor as well. Uh, Through a a series of negotiations, DC ended up at uh, Diamond Comics and actually had a a period of time when they could actually buy out uh, Diamond Comics. And... That triggered a whole, all, all the minor publishers as well to move to, to exclusive distribution through Diamond, which meant all the other co- distributors throughout the country completely collapsed. And that Marvel owned, or rather, uh, uh, Diamond owned the full set of distribution throughout the country and really triggered the monopolistic system that we live in today. Uh, Marvel's move to Heroes World was a complete failure. Um, it took them about six months to be able to build up enough. Experience at the business to be able to handle the size of the industry. And then uh, Marvel pulled the plug on Heroes World after about 15 months, which basically meant that everyone at that point was only distributed through Diamond Comics, which meant they had monopolistic um, ability. The Department of Justice did actually investigate it, didn't find them to be a formal monopoly, which is fascinating. No, no. It's not that they didn't find it to be a form of monopoly. Excuse me. It's that the business was too small to have monopolistic? Yeah,
1: exactly right. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's because the comic book industry is is so small that the it's it's beneath the Justice Department's you know concerns. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, Jason. I started interrupting you.
2: Oh, that's okay. So that that basically set the system that we have today, where. Uh, We only have one distributor in America. Because uh, comic shops were really squeezed in this deal, because either they couldn't get Marvel Comics, or they couldn't get the discounts they did before, because when they were ordering through one distributor, they were able to get like 50 or 60% discounts on all their comics. Whereas if they went through multiple distributors, they only were able to get like 33% discounts, which wasn't enough to pay their employees and on their overhead we went from like 5,000 comic stores in America it's like 3,000 stores by 1996-97 and it just continued to trigger this downhill slide in the industry in general
0: hmm.
1: and and a lot of those stores right Jason a lot of these stores could no longer be an exclusive comic book store they had to supplement their revenues in some way and and a a lot of them turn to magic uh the gathering card game among or or toys so it became a sort of hybrid store of you know comics and collectible card games and things like that
2: yeah you know, absolutely and we still see that today right i mean how many stores sell magic and other cards and hold game nights and do things like that yep. you know honestly i think it is a smart marketing approach to to try and sell different types of material. It just meant that the days, the pure comic store were really numbered at that point.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned this because I just thought of something that I guess my daughter uh, told me, not only just recently, but also she, she was telling me this like a few years ago as well. And I, I had been living in Frisco, Texas in the, in the Dallas area. And in, in Frisco, there was no comic shop until a few years ago. And one opened up a place called Docs Comics and it's pretty cool. But my daughter became, along with many of her friends, very much involved with what was going on at Docs Comics in Frisco, Texas. But the way that they engaged with the shop was through gaming and, and, you know, magic, yeah. the gathering was a big part of that, but also role playing games, uh, like, uh, of course, D and D and what is the, another one like Pathfinder's Pathways? I can't recall, but it, whenever my daughter would tell me I'm with my friends at the comic shop, you know, whereas initially i would think oh she's looking at comics and talking about comics or manga whatever it is she was reading at the time but no it had everything to do with games and that's something that i found relatively recently in a variety of shops not not all the comic shops that i'm familiar with but in many of them that there is a heavily reliance on games gaming cards and otherwise
1: yeah because the the profit a store uh, the profit a retailer makes from comic sales just cannot cannot sustain mm-hmm. their business. They just, they can, you, the, the amount of complex that you would have to push out on a monthly basis uh, is is just tremendous. You have the, you know, it's, these retailers have to supplement uh, their revenues or else, you know, go out of business. Hmm. And that's, You're- to me, that is the legacy of the 1990s. That is one of the, I think, to me, that is, that is the most significant legacy of the 1990s.
2: Mm. You know? I hadn't thought about that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that you have to be diverse. you got to be willing to sell other stuff. You can't just be a comic store.
0: Yeah.
1: Do you know, I mean, the, in the, the number of retailers in the, you know, in the past 10 years who have complained about Diamond and mm. how they essentially they, they feel they are a franchise of Diamond <laughs> Distributing um and it's you know you, you there's not many happy retailers these days and we could go through the whole we can catalog the reasons why but uh to me the diamond is right up there at the top of the list that um the the, the retail complaints about diamond about how they do their business about um it, <sighs> just the way they package the product uh and how the the product gets gets damaged or comes late or even or even on the publisher side about just trying to get into that previews um you know catalog on a monthly basis and how many how many publishers are shut out of that
0: you know now in in Hearing you guys talk about some of the problems in the 1990s when it comes to, let's say, distribution, sales, and whatnot, I'm wondering how you would describe the differences in terms of the problems with comics in the 1990s from some of the problems that, that, Keith, you wrote about in the 1980s volumes. Because that decade also had its issues. So, I mean – with the 80s so you're
1: starting out in the 80s with a newsstand model that is you know I think it was Paul Levitz that that told me that if not for the emergence of the direct market the comic book industry as we know it would have died in like 1983 or 1984 something like that so you you're talking about um but even with the emergence of the direct market in the 1980s you you, you're, you're still, uh, you know, a, a significant percentage of your um, comic book sales are coming from newsstands, are coming from, you know, stationary stores, grocery stores, you know, the, you know, the, the you know, the quote unquote where comic books have been traditionally sold. And but by the 1990s, I think the, the publishers have become so enamored with the direct market. So beguiled by the prospect of no returns that they devote essentially all their resources to the direct market, and and I don't blame them because the newsstand, the newsstand uh, by the early '80s has proven that they could care less about comic books. So I don't blame comic book publishers from shifting their resources and. Energy to the direct market, but everything that we've just been describing for the past 15 minutes proves when you when you are reliant on essentially one sort of system of distribution and you have no backup plan, uh, catastrophe is is inevitably the end result. So that that's how I would describe the difference between the '80s and '90s. Is that even even though the story of the 1980s, and I believe that the introduction to the 1980s volume states this, that the story of the 1980s is the emergence of the direct market. You still have a you know you still have a, a good portion of sales com- you know being directed through the newsstand, whereas th- by uh, the early 1990s, I think Marvel by the early 1990s could care less about the newsstand.
2: Now there is there is another trend that's really important too that kind of emerged in the 90s, which is the birth of the trade paperback, though, which that's is the true. other thing that really helped lead the comic industry back to health, um, because uh, you know the and Vertigo was really the the uh, leader in this. People weren't able to pick up each individual issue of Sandman, so. Um, Karen Berger smartly started collecting them into graphic novels, and those started selling like crazy. And it became a new model that comic shops and mainstream um, book publishers could use to to really see uh, the comics at, at uh, anywhere, and is a place to kind of have this evergreen content that could build uh, a larger audience and continually be something that people would want to read. And so um, that grow, grew into being something that became has now become all pervasive. Um, and I think we really saw that begin in the 1990s, particularly from Vertigo.
0: Great point. And it's interesting that you should mention this, Jason, because I was just about to ask you guys. I mean, we had been talking about what I would consider kind of downer issues, right? You know, a dramatic drop in sales, distribution issues, the exclusivity wars. Uh, but I wanted to ask both of you what you consider – Kind of one of the biggest or most notable uplifting events or moments from the 1990s that kind of carries into today. And Jason, from the way that you were discussing the trade paperback and its rise in the 1990s, is would you consider that one of those uplifting, hopeful moments from the 90s that has really defined in many ways the way we consume and engage with comics today?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, by the end of the decade, monthly comic sales were at uh, their absolute worst that they ha- ever had been. Um, we began the decade in, in January 1990 with 10.6 million units sold per month in the comic industry. By the end of the year, we were down to seven. Um, it peaked at 48 million. But in that seven, uh, not included in that seven, is the growth of the graphic novel, which is people coming back, you know, every six months to pick up a new volume of Sandman or uh, the Authority or whatever the series may be, and that really has helped to give everyone a base of health in the comic industry, where we know that uh, uh, that there's a lot of um, there's a good solid set of reading material that will uh, keep you involved and happy. Um, so that's one of the key trends. The other is that, uh, to a great extent, image comics won kind of the, the the war, even though they lost some of the battles in terms of internal fighting and sales. Because by the end of the decade, it just became accepted in the normal part of the way of looking at the industry that you kept your rights to your characters that you created. Uh, you know, uh, by by. 1999, everyone knew that Warren Ellis was going to keep part of the authority in planetary, and he was going to be able to make a, a good living Um, by getting royalties from these characters. And that's something that really wasn't part of the industry at the early part of the decade. Uh, Folks like McFarlane, Lee, and Liefeld really fought for that, and um, they achieved that goal. And I think that's a really important thing that we still see today. Um, Obviously, we see it in something like Walking Dead, where Robert Kirkman's made a tremendous amount of money through his own intellectual property, as it should be. Um, and, And I think that He's living in the shadow of the work that the image creators and the image founders were able to provide for him.
0: Well, as we round out our conversation, I, I want to ask the two of you, both collectively and individually, what you may be working on now or what we can look forward to in the future. Now, I know it's not a uh, uh, 2000s volume of the American Comic Book Chronicles, but other than that, <laughs> uh, what, what might you guys have in the works?
1: Do you, do you want to start? Uh, uh, I actually, um, uh, Jim Beard and I actually finished a. We finished scripting a, a Ghostbusters uh, one shot uh, that's going to be published by IDW um, in late April. Um, so excited to see that! Uh, I did because uh, uh, in 2019, that's the 35th anniversary of the premiere of the Ghostbusters movie. Oh so my IDW, god! Hard to has, believe, man i yeah. feel so old now wow. I <laughs> um so idw is is celebrating that in a big way and um and jim beater and i who who collaborated in 2010 on uh on our ghostbusters one shot they um uh, our editor contacted us to write um a one shot of the extreme ghostbusters which <laughs> tied to the 1990s that was one of the uh that was the follow-up that was the cartoon follow-up to the real ghostbusters uh it only lasted one season but it's actually a fun a fun group of characters to uh to write on so i have that uh we are the the, again the the first 1940s volume is fully written and we're about to design it and uh, you know other than that i have a you know a couple of uh creator own projects that I'm hoping to, you know, too soon to talk about, but hoping to, to really get off the ground.
2: Okay. Uh, so I, as I mentioned, I have Jim Shooter Conversations, which is already out through University Press of Mississippi. I'm working on two more books for them, one on Steve Gerber and the other on Don McGregor. The Gerber book is slated to be out, um, I think, July of this year, and then McGregor probably in December. And then I have a couple of the other projects I'm working on as well. Hmm,
0: okay, so we can look forward to those projects in the relatively near future, definitely in this coming year. Uh, Keith, Jason, I want to thank both of you for taking the time on a January 1st, 19, uh, 2019 morning to talk with me about not only the kind of things that you're working on in general, but specifically the latest volume on the 1990s of the American Comic Book Chronicle series.
2: Thanks for having us. Thanks, Derek. It's been fun.
0: Thanks again to Keith Dallas and Jason Sachs for coming back on the Comics Alternative to discuss their new book, American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1990s. It came out last month from Tomorrow's Publishing, and it's a must-read for any serious student of comics history. And if you want to find great prices on texts like this, then head on over to the website of our sponsor, Discount Comic Book Service. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you go to DCB Service right now, you'll find great discounts on Keith and Jason's 1990s volume, as well as other works in tomorrow's American Comic Book Chronicles series. That's DCBService.com. And after you do get your books there, get in touch with me and let me know what you thought about my interview with Jason Sachs and Keith Dallas. If you go to our website, comicsalternative.com, you'll find that you can leave us a voice message online via SpeakPipe. Or you can contact us the old fashioned way by picking up your phone and dialing 4153comics. That's 415 326 6427. You can also email us. We're two guys at comicsalternative.com. Or you can email me directly. I'm Derek at comicsalternative.com. And you can reach us all over social media. We have accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, Google+, Goodreads, Pinterest, YouTube, Slack, and Discord. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, you can stream us on Stitcher, you can also find us on Spotify, on TuneIn, on iHeartRadio, and on Google Podcasts. But you can find every single one of our podcast episodes, as well as the reviews and comics related commentary that we post on our blog, simply by going to our website, comicsalternative.com. We have more content lined up in the days to come, so be sure to check back for those episodes. Until then, take care.